Amen. Good morning. Uh, welcome to Church of the Redeemer. My name is Drew. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're wondering why uh, so many of you have commented on my dress this morning, which makes me think that maybe we have reverse self-righteousness about dressing casually rather than dressing up for church. So be careful, pastoral warning. It's okay to wear a tied church, right? Okay, but it's okay not to. So you might be wondering what's going on. Well, it could be that uh, I'm celebrating the arrival of the cool weather, which is just amazing. Could be that I'm celebrating the loss of a particular college football team last night. That makes me feel half as bad about the fact that my team already has two losses. Uh, Or it could be the fact that we're celebrating our third anniversary today, and tonight we're going to be meeting at 530. uh, we, We call it a particularization service. I've heard it called a peculiarization service. Either way... It works. Uh, So please come back tonight at 530. There are going to be people, representatives from the churches in Lakeland that we're related to denominationally and also from other places all over southwest Florida that are here to celebrate with us tonight that we are going to be organized as a church and then we're going to ordain and install our elders that will be ruling elders for us. We have six of them. And then also we will be officially installing Jonathan and I as the pastors of the church. And you'll get a chance to say, no, we don't want those guys tonight if you want to. That could be worth the price of admission right there. So you might want to come and check it out. Okay. Uh, this morning we're going to continue in our series from the book of First and Second Samuel, looking at the life of David. And so if you have a Bible with you, uh, you can turn there uh, to First Samuel 22, verses 1 and 2, and then First Samuel 27, 1 through 6. Uh, I, warning, I'm, it's not going to be as uh, important for you this morning because what I want to talk about is a l- a little, deals a little more broadly with some of the themes that are being developed in this part because we can't go to every passage verse by verse. We'll be here until I'm 50 years old otherwise. And, so, and, and I'm 36, so that's a long time, okay? So we're going to kind of hit some things, and this morning we're going to deal with some kind of general, very broad uh, themes that the writer of this story is dealing with. Uh, but we're going to look very quickly at these verses. 1 Samuel 22, 1 through 2, 1 Samuel 27, 1 through 6, and then we're actually going to read a passage from Mark chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, and I'm going to read it from the message, which is Eugene Peterson's translation, because I think he does a great job with that. So let's read together. David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and his, all, all his father's house heard it, they went down to him there And everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. Now that's a core group. Right? And he became commander over them, and there were with him about 400 men. Then David said in his heart, now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There's nothing better for me than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. So David arose and went over, he and the 600 men who were with him, to Achish, the son of Maok, king of Gath. And David lived with Achish at Gath, he and his men, every man with his household, and David with his two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail of Carmel, Nabal's wife, Nabal's widow. And when it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, he no longer sought him. And then David said to Achish, If I found favor in your eyes, let a place be given me in one of the country towns that I may dwell there. For why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you? So that day Achish gave him Ziklag. Therefore, Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. I petitioned our core group to name the church Ziklag, and they shot me down. 
<laughs> and then from Mark 2. And pick up, on the, pick up on the similarity in themes here, okay? 15 through 17 from the message. Later, Jesus and his disciples were at home having supper with a collection of disreputable guests. Unlikely as it seems, more than a few of them had become followers. The, religious, the religion scholars and the Pharisees saw him keeping, company with this, keep, keeping this kind of company and lit into his disciples. What kind of example is this? Acting cozy with the riffraff. Jesus overhearing shot back, Who needs a doctor, the healthy or the sick? I'm here inviting the sin sick, not the spiritually fit. This is God's word. Now, this fall we're doing a series all throughout First and Second Samuel on the life of David, and we're calling it David and David's son because David is a type of Christ. And by that I mean, when Jesus comes upon the scene in the New Testament, in the Gospels, he is born in the city of David. He is hailed as the son of David, and the angels sing that he will sit on the throne of David as the long-awaited king, the Messiah, the son of David who would come. And so the New Testament is constantly pointing us back to David in the Old Testament to help us understand Jesus and his mission. And that means that we should expect that there would be some parallels in those two stories that help us kind of understand David in light of Jesus, Jesus in light of David. And that's exactly what we find here. And so there are two broad themes that I want to deal with this morning, okay? The first of those is the character of David's army, and you see that in 1 Samuel 22, verse 2. The character of David's army... Secondly, the conditions of David's army, the living conditions of David's army, okay? So those two, two broad kind of just themes that are being kind of played out in a bunch of different places in these chapters. So the character of his army and the living conditions of his army. And then I want to ask two questions. What is it about the gospel and how the gospel works that makes those things necessary, both the character and living conditions of his army? And then secondly, what does it mean for us as a church? Okay, that's where I want to go this morning. So... Let's start together by looking at the character of David's army. Look there again at verse 2 of chapter 22 of 1 Samuel. And everyone who was in distress, and everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him, and he became commander over them. And there were about 400 men, 400 bitter people. And in case you missed the point the narrator is making, this is not exactly the kind of army that you want. Okay? So when David was exiled, the first thing that happens is his family comes down to where he was, probably for fear of Saul's reprisal. You see that in verse 1, which is really amazing because to this point they've been very antagonistic towards him, but now they've kind of caught on and they've come down to where David is. And when this happens, he becomes a rallying point for all of the different people in Israel who are dissidents for one reason or another. So take these one at a time, okay? Let's look back here again. Those who were in distress, were told, rallied to David. And the word, uh, the Hebrew word there literally means a narrow place. So it refers to people, a people, the kind of people that are just being crushed. And the only thing that I could think of as an illustration is the scene in Star Wars where Luke and Han Solo and Princess Leia get, like, they have to go down the chute and they end up in the garbage compactor. Remember that? And the walls are just... I mean, that, that really is the metaphor of describing that kind of person, that these are people who are just being crushed by life. I mean, life is just closing in on them and just squeezing the life out of them. So it's the stressed out, the exhausted, people with heavy burdens that are worrying about mortgage payments and how to put food on the table. They rally to David. Secondly, we're told that those who are in debt rally to David. So in other words, it's the poor, the, the disadvantaged, those struggling under Saul's political and financial policies. 
they rallied to him. And then my favorite, the third characterization here, those who were bitter in soul. In other words, the discontent. I mean, from a managerial standpoint, there's nothing worse than a malcontent because they can just suck the life out of you and everybody else there around. Always something to complain about. Always never happy with what's going on. And this is David's army. Now, what's amazing is, is in the next chapter, in verse Uh, In the next chapter, when Saul gathers an army to come out into the wilderness to hunt David down, we're told that he gathers 300 chosen men. (laughs) And the Hebrew there means really at the best, it means the special forces, right? The best of the best. So Saul has 3,000 special force soldiers, the well-oiled, disciplined, tested machinery. David has the militia. He has the untrained, undisciplined, grumpy guys, and there are only 400 of them. And the contrast is absolutely intentional because the narrator sees it as evidence of David's legitimacy over against Saul because David's leadership of this ragtag group of malcontents will, be tra- will transform them into a mighty army that will go on to deliver Israel from its enemies. So it is the unqualified, it is the undesirables, it is whatever designation you would give them that find a place in David's army and participate in the salvation that the Lord is providing through David. Not, not, not the strong, but the weak. Not the powerful, but those who are oppressed. Not the religious, but those who are morally bankrupt. Not the social elite, but the outsiders. Now, this is a theme that's been being played out all throughout this story. Remember David's anointing. Remember this, when Samuel comes to Bethlehem to anoint one of the sons of Jesse to be the next king... Jesse gathers all of his sons together, and all of them, every single one of them, even Samuel, thinks it's it's obviously going to be Eliab, the firstborn son, who is head and shoulders above the rest, and he is the most kingly looking of all of them. Obviously, he is the Lord's choice, but God passes over Eliab. He passes over the other seven, and he says to Jesse, are there no more sons that you have? And Jesse says, oh, yeah, I forgot. There's the, the, the youngest, and literally the runt. But we, you know... But we didn't even think enough of him to really even invite him. He's still out there with the sheep in the fields. And God says, go get him. You know, Samuel says, go get him because that's the one I want. So God passes over Eliab, the firstborn, and chooses David, the runt. And that's a picture of the way the kingdom of God works. That it subverts every cultural paradigm we're working with. Paul says it this way. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1 that it's not the wise or the powerful, or those of noble birth, uh, those are passed up in favor of the foolish, the weak, the lowly, and the despised, in order to show that wisdom and power and social standing count for nothing with God. They may make a name for you in society, but they don't get you anywhere with God. And if you can remember that far back, this is the kind of shakeup that Hannah, Samuel's mother, prayed in her prayer in 1 Samuel 2, that God's anointed, we are told there, would break the bows of the mighty, and would make the feeble strong, that he would, this anointed one, this king that was going to come, would bring low those who were haughty and raise up the poor from the dust and lift up the needy and make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. So the shakeup that Hannah envisions is being played out here in Ziklag, in David, in his army. But remember, remember what we said a few weeks ago when we looked at that passage in 1 Samuel 2. In Luke chapter 1, Mary, the mother of Jesus, prayed a similar prayer about the baby who would be God's anointed who was growing in her womb and the salvation that he would bring, using Hannah's words almost verbatim. And she says it this way. She says, as she sings to the Lord, the Magnificent, she sings, The Lord has brought down the mighty 
from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. So it makes sense then that when Jesus shows up, the same kinds of people that were attracted to David, who was God's anointed, would be attracted to him. The same kinds, you know, categories of people who rally to David the king would rally to King Jesus. We would expect to see that same kind of reversal take place in his ministry. And indeed, when we read Mark chapter 2, Mark reports that it happens exactly that way. Jesus is chastised for eating with disreputable guests. (laughs) And I love that designation. In the ESV, it's translated, he's eating with tax collectors and sinners. And that's a helpful way of understanding the kinds of people that were attracted to Jesus in his ministry because the tax collector, in other words, the first category of person that rallied to Jesus was, was the moral, was, excuse me, was the social outsider, the tax collector, the person that was hated by the wider society of people. Uh, so elsewhere, it's, uh, you know, what, whatever the category might be. But then there's also the category of the sinner. And the sinner's just the moral failure. The sinner is the person who is just morally bankrupt. And so it might be prostitutes or the sexual deviant or technicolor sinners of some kind. And again, the point that even Mark is making there in Mark 2 is this is not the sort of company you expect the Messiah to be keeping. And obviously that's what the religious leaders were thinking. Weren't they? they had no category for Jesus' fellowship. I love it. What's he doing acting cozy with the riffraff? Because in their mind, I suppose, it should have been the social elites. It should have been the political leaders. It should have been the religious authorities at his side and at his table, not tax collectors and sinners. But in Jesus, what's we, see, Jesus not only interacted with them, he ate with them. And in that day, to do that, the implication was very clear. It was Jesus' way of saying, these are my people. And so this is the teaching of this part of David's story. The malcontents, the, those in debt, the distress that, that rallied to David, these are God's kind of people, not the chosen men of Saul's army and not the political and religious leaders in the community. And so, something about the way we place value on people's being subverted here, I think. And that's the point. The gospel produces this great reversal where God chooses to work his salvation through the weak and not through the strong. And the best illustration I can think of it is at the end of the Lord of the Rings movie, the third movie, where you have this ceremony on top of of the city um, wall where Aragorn Aragorn is being installed as the king, and, and the people are there celebrating and Minas Tirith, and, and, and there's all this fanfare, and there's rose petals falling from the sky, and it's just all this amazing thing. And then they come upon Frodo and Sam and Merry and Pippin, the, the four hobbits who are, you know, dwarfed by everyone else. There's all these men and, you know, armor and these warriors standing around. And here are these four little guys in the middle of this whole thing. And as Aragorn walks up to them, uh, they begin to bow to him, and he interrupts them to say, Oh, no, oh, no, you bow to no one. And the king gets on his knees before these four little guys and the whole company of soldiers and the city fall prostrate before these men because it is through those four that salvation has come. And Tolkien knew what he was doing. Okay, let's be honest. Because he was a Christian. And this is the way the kingdom of heaven works. And what makes David different from all the other kings in Israel and all the other nations is that it isn't the special forces that rally to him. The riffraff does. And it's through the riffraff that God works out his salvation. And that's not only true of David, but in greater measure, it's also true of Jesus. So, first broad theme, 
is the character of David's army. Okay, but secondly, I want us to see the living conditions of David's army. Okay, and, and we see that here as we come along in, the, in these passages. Uh, David's family and his followers have to go out into the wilderness to find him. We're told he's been exiled to the cave of Adullam in verse 1 of chapter 22. And it's not until he convinces the king of the Philistines to give him the city of Ziklag in 27, 5 through 7 that David has a permanent dwelling place. And so what most commentators and scholars say is that somewhere about 10 years, David and his army are forced to live in the wilderness. They are wilderness dwellers for 10 years. And when I say wilderness, I really mean desert, harsh land, inhospitable land, no good food source, hardly any water, full of wild animals. And that was the living condition of David's army. Now, if you're familiar with the rest of the Bible, you know that this is significant. Uh, Eugene Peterson, who is a commentator and also the translator of the message, he said it this way. He said, everybody, at least everybody who has anything to do with God, spends time in the wilderness. And the statement highlights an important biblical theme, that God's people... Everywhere, from beginning to end, if you read the Bible, God's people are formed through wilderness experiences. They're prepared for their mission through wilderness experiences. So David's wilderness story here is bracketed by two very famous wilderness stories in the Bible. And the first is in the book of Exodus, where God comes to Egypt where his people are slaves. And he brings them out of Egypt and is taking them to the land that he has promised to their fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But before they can get to the land, they are forced, because of their sin, to wander for 40 years. And during that 40 years, God prepares them for the mission he's going to give them when they go into the promised land. Later, moving forward in the story of the Bible, when John the Baptist shows up early in the Gospels, guess where he shows up? In the wilderness. And the people have to go out into the wilderness to see him. And then when Jesus comes to be baptized by him, when the Holy Spirit descends upon him, we're told that the Spirit throws Jesus out into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. So so this theme of wilderness is important within the framework of the Bible story. Israel had to wander for 40 years before they were ready for the mission God had given them. Jesus had to go out into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights before he was ready for the three years of ministry that would follow And here David had to spend 10 years in the wilderness before he was ready to be king of Israel. And so there's definitely something here. And probably the best way to understand all of this and why God would do it this way is a passage in Deuteronomy 8 where God explains through Moses why Israel was made to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. And it's an amazing couple of verses in Deuteronomy 8, 2 through 5. And I'll just read it to you. But you can look it up later if you'd like. But God comes to the people through Moses and this is what he says. He says, You shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart. He humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna that he might make known to you that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Know then that in your heart, that as a man disciplines his son, so the Lord your God disciplines you. Man, there, there is so much to learn from those verses we're told that the wilderness is a place of testing. That it's a place of being humbled, of being stripped of all of the luxuries that we surround ourselves with and be made to see our need. It's a metaphor for God's fatherly discipline, Moses says. So there's a doctrine that develops out of all of these wilderness stories. And I kind of have to choke as I even say it because it's very difficult. But it would be something like this. I think a teaching that you could clearly see from all of these places in the Bible is something like God 
is committed to deliberately introducing hard circumstances into your life and mine to make us weak and to increase our dependence upon him. God, let me, okay. God, because he's a father, is committed to introducing hard circumstances, wilderness experiences, some that last longer than others, into our lives in order to make us weak and helpless. He's going to introduce low-level suffering into your life, financial stress or loneliness or behavior problem with one of your kids, whatever it might be. And sometimes, sometimes even the big stuff like cancer or the death of a loved one or the betrayal of a best friend, whatever it might be, God allows it. And I would say, I changed the word there, you, you, he not only allows it, you could say he orchestrates it to strip us of self-confidence and self-sufficiency and cause us to feel our need. Moses says, he humbled you and let you hunger (laughs) so that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone. Now, the teaching is that we have all these things we're leaning on to give us confidence. It may be a relationship. It may be a savings account. It may be whatever it might be. And where God sees, because he's a father who loves you, where he sees that you're looking to those things instead of him, then his love for you demands that he thwart you that he might bring you to a place of need where you see those things are really powerless to save you. And he does this to teach you that the only place that you should put your hope and trust is in him. That man does not live by bread alone. It's the Bible's way of saying you can't provide for yourself. You can't arrange for your life. You're not in control no matter how hard you might try, no matter what resources you have at, the, at your disposal. At the end of the day, when things get really tough, you are helpless before him. And before life. And where you don't know that. In other words, where you're still suffering under the delusions of self-sufficiency and control. Let me be your friend and tell you, God has a... If, if you truly belong to him and he is your heavenly father, then he has a wilderness waiting for you to teach you the lesson. And it's good of him to do that. It's loving of him to do that. Because the wilderness is not the place where God forsakes you. The wilderness is the place you go to find him. And I know this is exactly the opposite of the way we've been trained to think. Even in American evangelicalism. And so be careful of the teaching that says God has a wonderful plan for your life. And that plan is to make you rich and successful and carefree. There's an element of truth. In that teaching, but there's a whole bunch of error too because what the scripture says is not that God wants you to be rich. It says God wants you to be rich in faith. And most of the time, in order to accomplish that, he has to send you out into the wilderness. Now, so we see then the character of David's army and we see the living conditions of his army, okay? And these things have huge practical implications for our lives. But we need to ask two questions uh, and we need to draw to a close this morning. So let's ask the first question. Question number one, then, why or what is it about the gospel and the way the gospel works that makes this necessary? Why is it that this must be the, the, the character and the living conditions of all of those who would rally to God's anointed? Why is it the riffraff, not the special forces, and the social elites and the religious leaders? Why is, they, is it they that rally to God's anointed? Why is it that the living conditions in the kingdom of heaven must be that God would intentionally lead us through wilderness experiences to humble us? And it causes us to feel our need. The answer is right there in Mark chapter 2, 
verse 17 in Jesus' question to the religious leaders when he says, who needs a doctor, the healthy or the sick? And you see what Jesus does there is he contrasts two different kinds of people, the healthy and then the sick. Or, you know, or, or the, the spiritually fit is the, way, is the way Eugene Peterson puts it. I really like it. In the ESV, it's the righteous. The spiritually fit. And then on the other hand, the sin sick. And so according to Jesus, there are two kinds of people in the world, two kinds of people in this room this morning, and only two. On the one hand, there are those who fit into the category of the healthy or the spiritually fit. In other words, the strong people, the moral people, the healthy people, the well-respected people, successful people, good people. Or we would, put, we would put it like this, the people who consider themselves spiritual somebodies. And then there are the sin sick, the broken, the diseased, the sinners. Literally, I, I tried to get Connie and Jonathan to help me with this this week. The, the, the Greek word is literally the root from which we get the word kaka. And I said, is that a technical word? Did you know it's in the dictionary? Kaka, which means... Excrement, the spiritual nobodies, the the dregs at the bottom of the barrel. And the passage really begs us to ask or ask this question: Which which are you? See, that's the question. I mean, when you think of yourself, which of those two categories do you put yourself in? Because Jesus says very clearly, and this is why I chose this passage for the call to worship, that it is not the spiritually fit, but it is the poor in spirit that enter the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom belongs to them. In other words, the only way to experience God's salvation is to know that you're a spiritual nobody. And that's what it means to be poor in spirit. To be poor in spirit means that you don't have, let me, to be poor, Okay, poor. To be poor means you don't have the resources you need to pay your bills. To be spiritually poor means you don't, you don't have the spiritual resources that you need to pay your debt. You see, a spiritually fit person looks at their life and they think, you know, well, you know, I'm a pretty good person. I mean, I've never murdered anybody or anything like that. You know, I, I go to church. I help people. I do some good things. I mean, that's, that's middle class in spirit. Right? And it's the exact opposite of a person who's poor in spirit because a person who's poor in spirit knows that they are sin sick. In other words, they know, they live with the reality that there's a spiritual disease that has corrupted their hearts, that even their good works, even their best works are stained with selfish motivations and impure desires. They know that they, at the end of the day, could put forth no evidence that would gain them standing with God. So let me say it this way. A person who's poor in spirit knows that he or she is the problem. The problem is not my circumstances. The problem is not other people, stupid people, and how they're treating me. The problem is not any of those things. The problem is me. The problem is my heart, my sin, my selfishness, my self-absorption. I need a savior. I need a king who would come and rescue me from me. So let me ask you, Do you know that you have nothing to commend yourself to God? Do you know that you stand before him naked? Of any good works you might try to dress yourself up with, do you know that you're a spiritual nobody? And if you don't, then you might be very religious, but you're not a Christian yet. Okay? Because Jesus did not come to be an example for the spiritually fit to follow. He came to be a savior and a healer of the sin sick. 
And the gospel of Jesus is just this, that Jesus lived the life that we should have lived and he died the death that we should have died. And you've heard us say this over and over again. This is one of those things we throw out there all the time. Jesus lived the life we should have lived and he died the death that we should have died. And here's what that means. A little kind of snapshot into what that means. As I've said, David's wilderness experience is bracketed by those two other stories. Israel's 40 years in the wilderness and Jesus' 40 days in the wilderness. So 40 years, 40 days. And nearly all the commentators say They make note of that, and they say that Jesus spent 40 days in the wilderness because in his coming, in his incarnation, he was entering into the experience of his people. They spent 40 years in the wilderness, so he would spend 40 days there. And this is what we've, you know, been reading in Hebrews over and over again, if you've been reading with us in Community Bible Reading. For example, Hebrews 2.17, he had to be made like his brothers. Because we have flesh and blood, he had to have flesh and blood. And the writer of Hebrews says that it had to be this way, so that he can make propitiation for our sins. That Jesus had to come and enter into our experience. He had to share our suffering. He had to be tempted as we are tempted in every way, so that he could live the life that we should have lived. He could live a substitutionary life. His obedience in the place of our disobedience, and also so that he could die the death that we should have died, that he could die in our place, a substitutionary death. And so what the gospel teaches is that Jesus got what he did not deserve so that we could get what we do not deserve. (laughs) We do not deserve to be loved by God. We do not deserve to participate in his salvation, yet in Jesus we are loved by God, but not because of anything we we have done or will do or are. Paul says we are saved by grace through faith, and this not of yourselves. It's not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. Grace means we do nothing and he does everything. And if you're not a Christian and you're here, I hope you hear me say that you don't become a Christian through the process of moral reformation. Christianity is not about bad people becoming good people. It's about dead people becoming alive people. By the grace of God, the only way to become a Christian is to know you're a spiritual nobody and then turn to Jesus in faith and put your whole heart's hope and trust in him to provide for you what you cannot provide for yourself. That's what makes somebody a Christian. And that's why in the time of King David, God's anointed in the time of Jesus, the Christ, the anointed, it was, and even today continues to be, the rejects, the losers, and the dropouts that rally to Christianity. Because, because, think about this, because if, if you've already been labeled a nobody by society, by whoever, then it's not quite so hard to think of yourself as a spiritual nobody. But it's the somebodies. It's the spiritually fit. It's the successful. It's the affluent. It's the well-respected and the educated. It's those people that have a hard time with the idea they're spiritual nobodies. And if and if they ever do come to, like me, you know, that I'm describing me, okay? This is, this is who I you know, have been my whole life. I've been the good son. And when somebody who has lived... Uh, you know, in the role of a good son all their life, comes to see themselves as sin-sick. That is a miracle of the grace of God. But it's what's required, and thus, and thus, the wilderness. So let me ask again, which category do you put yourself in? If you consider yourself among the spiritually fit, then these passages offer you a warning, but if you know that you're sin-sick, if you know you're a nobody and you're a spiritual nobody, don't despair. What an incredible encouragement to you. But let me ask a second question, and I really do need to come to a close here, okay? What does this mean for our church? Let me make three observations 
Just in passing, first, number one, the church should be full of riffraff. Amen? Right. The church should be full of nobodies who've been made spiritual nobodies by God's grace in Jesus. Who've been made spiritual somebodies by God's grace. Let me say that again. The church should be full of nobodies who have been made spiritual somebodies by God's grace. Tax collectors, social outsiders, ex-cons, the homeless, the poor, and the needy, sinners, moral failures, adulterers, divorcees, teen moms, women who've had an abortion, crooks, whoever it might be, tax collectors and sinners who've put their faith in Jesus and are being renewed. The Bible says that's the church. Observation number two, thinking about these things probably should temper our expectations a little bit. Think about this. Just think about this. this I, love, I can't wait to, t- to say this sentence because it's just... Think, the church is the only institution in the world whose admissions requirement is that you can prove beyond any reasonable doubt that you're a screw-up. Is that not awesome? Let me say it again. Because you may not have thought it was as profound as I do, but I really did, and so I want to say it again. Okay? The church, that, that was a joke, but never mind, forget it. The church is the only institution in the world whose admissions requirement is that you can prove beyond any reasonable doubt that you're a screw-up. That means that the church is not full of good people. The church is full of sinners who are being redeemed, but sinners still. And if we're not careful, we can develop expectations that are just unrealistic. So Eugene Peterson writes about this. He says, every time I move into a new community, I find a church close by and join it, committing myself to worship and work with that company of God's people. (laughs) He says, I've never been anything but disappointed. (laughs) That's awesome. I laugh so hard. I've never been anything but disappointed. Everyone turns out to be biblical through and through, but murmurers, complainers, the faithless, the inconstant, those plagued with doubt and riddled with sin, boring moralizers. But then here's what he says, but every once in a while... A shaft of blazing beauty seems to break out of nowhere and illuminate these companies. And then I see what my sin-dulled eyes had missed. Word of God-shaped, Holy Spirit-created lives of sacrificial humility, incredible courage, heroic virtue, holy praise, joyful suffering, constant prayer, persevering obedience. I think we forget that where we meet with a person who is truly patient, I mean, where you find a person who is truly humble, or gentle, or can show forgiveness to other people, that is a miracle. When you consider how ruined by sin the world is, the church, and that we get anything done, and that we figure out how to love one another ever so slightly is a miracle of God's grace. And so thirdly then, today, as we think about today, today let's celebrate God's grace. Today is not a day to celebrate Jonathan and I, not that I expect you to. (laughs) Or the men who we will ordain and install tonight as elders, that would be entirely misplaced. As you look back at the past three years and think of all that God has done for us as a people. I mean, this facility, raising up leaders from our midst, all the new friends we've made, whatever it might be, it is only only appropriate that we celebrate him. And his mercy for who are we that he should treat us the way he has. And who am I that he should look upon me with such favor. Eugene Peterson again reminds us that this story of David and our story too. Is a story of God working salvation out among those who need to be saved. And I like the way he said this. He said among a people not defined by where they came from or what they did. But by what God 
has done in and for them. And so I'm so glad for the opportunity to celebrate with you tonight. And please come back and be a part of that with us. And invite your friends and bring everybody you can. But I'm also glad for the opportunity to eat this meal together this morning. Because it calls us to celebrate, but not to celebrate ourselves. To celebrate the love that God has for us in Jesus seen in his body, broken in his bloodshed for us. And it calls us to remember, but not to remember our spiritual successes, but to remember him and to make his work on our behalf, our joy, and our delight. So if you are sin sick, if you are distressed or discontent or burdened beyond your bearing, fly to this table this morning, okay? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the, for the truth of the gospel that tells us that um, we who had no claim on your love have been loved, but not because of anything we've done. You love us in your grace. The scripture over and over again just is floored by this. And the writers of the scripture just can hardly contain themselves when they talk about you being a God who is slow to anger and abounding in love, you being a God who, unlike any other God that has ever existed, you being a king, unlike any other king who does not love those who are powerful and and, uh, rich and successful only. But with equal measure you love not just the rich but the poor, not just the powerful but the weak, and not just uh, the social uh, elites but also the social misfits. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that when you came across tax collectors and sinners, you loved them perfectly. And when you came across Pharisees and the spiritually fit, like me, you've loved us perfectly too. Help us now to celebrate you in this meal and to celebrate the grace that you've shown to us. And we pray these things in your name. Amen. Um, Monthly, when we take communion, we all stand and say the Apostles' Creed together. So as we come to that point, I'd invite you to stand and say uh, the creed along with me. Let me ask you a question, and then we will respond by saying the creed. Christian, in an age of unbelief, what is it that you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. As we come to this table, I just want to highlight one thing. Uh, it is a meal, and I want you to just, uh, for a moment, <clears throat> in light of what Drew's already said, think about the finest meal that you've ever had, uh, the best wine that you've ever tasted, or if you don't drink wine, the best grape juice you've ever had, or what you really like to drink, the best, you know, after a, a hard day's work being outside and a glass of cold water, whatever it might be. The thing about 
the world is that when you go to a restaurant, you have a nice meal, particularly some of the more finer restaurants with more expensive meals. The problem is the bill always comes, and you got to pay it, or you'll go to jail. Uh, this feast that's before you is the most amazing, most nourishing, most expensive meal that's ever been presented. Uh, and this is what God says about it. Come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. He says, why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen to me, and eat what is good, and delight yourselves in the richest affair. The reason that this meal in front of you does not cost you anything is because it's already been paid for. Uh, And so the wonder and the miracle of the body of Christ broken for you and the blood of Christ shed for you is that he has already done it and he invites you to come and to be nourished and enjoy the fruit of his labor so as we've already heard uh, as you come forward this morning you are saying I am sin sick and I must have it Uh, the greatest food the greatest drink that's ever been offered, that's ever been provided in the history of the world. So you get to enjoy that this morning. But I want to warn you, uh, before you do come, with two things. First, is that this is not uh, the table of Church of the Redeemer. Uh, It is the Lord Jesus Christ's table. This is the meal that He has won for us. This is the meal that's free Because his body was broken, his blood shed, it should have been our bodies broken, our blood shed. And so if your faith and your hope and your trust, if you've not aligned yourself to him, uh, I would caution you to remain in your seat and not come forward so that you don't eat and drink in a manner that's unworthy because you don't know, you don't understand, you don't discern the body and blood of Christ. Uh, The second thing is, it's a table of peace, it's a table of reconciliation that's been won for us uh, through his broken body and his shed blood. And so if there is an area of your life, a relationship, something in, in your life that needs reconciliation, you need to go out and pursue peace, make peace. Uh, I would invite you to go and do that in the next month and come back the 1st of November and share this meal with us. So those are just two warnings, two cautions I would give uh, before I invite you forward. Uh, I'm going to say the words we say every month. They're called the words of institution, where we rehearse that night and what Jesus did, the words that he said. Uh, After I do that, I'll invite our servers to come up. We'll have uh, two stations here, two stations here. If everybody would come in through uh, the center aisle, come up here, take the elements, uh, return to your seat on the outside. Uh, Don't take the elements until everybody has received them. Uh, We'll take the bread and the cup together uh, once we're finished, okay? And so, I would remind you that on the night uh, he was betrayed, uh, Jesus had gathered with the disciples, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke the bread, and he gave it to them, and he said, 
This is my body, broken for you. Whenever you eat it, do it in remembrance of me. Uh, After they had had supper, he took the cup, and again after he had given thanks, he gave it to them and he said, this is my blood of the new covenant which is shed for you for the forgiveness of your sins. So whenever you drink it, drink it in remembrance of me. And so we have his body broken, his blood shed. Uh, This is his body in the place of yours, his blood in the place of yours, of the richest affair. Uh, So as you're led, I'm going to pray. Servers, if you would, come on up here. Uh, And once I'm done, you uh, you come as you're led. Lord Jesus, as we take your body broken this morning and we take your blood shed, we ask that you would feed us. Uh, We don't assume that we can come to this table uh, pretending to be something other than we are, which is uh, sin sick and broken beyond all recognition. Uh, So come and and feed us, come and be present with us, uh, and allow us to experience uh, your grace through your body broken, through your blood shed, and nourish us by your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Please come. Now taking the bread together, this is the body of Christ broken for you. Taking the cup, this is the blood of Christ shed for you. Lord Jesus, we do worship you. We do praise you that flesh and blood, born a baby, would become flesh and blood, the one perfect sacrifice. Uh, And we pray that you would indeed feed us in the mysterious way that that you do through this meal. And change us, we pray. Nourish us for the mission. In your name, amen. Uh, As we do each month, we have a ministry report during which time we take a mercy offering. Uh, So I I know the, Barry, the guys take a mercy offering. Yeah, we hope so. Uh, And David Savant, I guess, he's coming up here, so I guess he's going to talk, is going to tell us a little bit about uh, a scholarship fund that our church has the uh, privilege of being responsible for and participating in. The, um, as you probably know, the mission statement of Church of the Redeemer is to make Jesus' invisible kingdom visible uh, in Winter Haven and throughout the world. And uh, one of the ways uh, that we do that, one of our core mission strategies, is to be about the business of church planting. Well, you can't plant churches without planters. And... Um, just want to read one uh, short passage here from Romans. Uh, In chapter 10, Paul says, But how are they to call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him in whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? Um, So as as we think about that uh, passage and that, that strategy of church planting, 
just want to give you a short history on something that's probably been uh, a well-kept secret around here. Um, 30 years ago, 1981, <clears throat> there was a, um, a scholarship fund established in memoriam. Um, it was actually rela related to um, uh, the early death of, of my brother and uh, also to um, a teenager uh, that was part of Covenant here, Cindy Sweet. And um, over the past 30 years, uh, this scholarship fund has grown through the generous donations of many, and it has uh, funded uh, uh, seminary uh, tuition and fees and such for, uh, for many folks over the course of that time. Um, over $300,000 has been distributed in 30 years. Um, and, in, and in more recent times, we've been able to fund uh, a fairly high level. We currently have uh, 12 uh, students who are receiving uh, benefits of the, of, the sem uh, of the scholarship fund at various seminaries. This includes Reformed Theological Seminary in Orlando, the Orlando campus. It also includes... Um, Reformed Theological Seminary has a virtual campus, which is, uh, you know, more modern technology, of course, but that's through uh, Charlotte and uh, also Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia and Covenant Theological Seminary in St. Louis. Um, it's, uh, it's been a, an amazing blessing. As we sit here in this facility and we think about God's goodness uh, and the generosity of Covenant Presbyterian Church that was here, not only did they leave us and, and gift to us this property, they gifted to us this scholarship fund, which presently has uh, over $350,000 in assets. Uh, the objective of the fund is to be about helping young men um, achieve their, their goal and that dream of, of pursuing a, a life of ministry. And uh, we have uh, several of us here in the church now who manage the fund, uh, Ben Crosby, Gene Lanehart, and myself, and then Drew sits in and gives us uh, advisory. We have several uh, men, even in our midst, who uh, benefit from it. We have um, distributed funds as well for some of our uh, uh, folks who are part of our sister churches, Christ Community, and uh, as well as Trinity. And, and then people from all over. I mean, think about over 30 years how many people have been affected by this. I want to read to you just a couple of uh, short um, messages we received uh, from recipients. And this is a guy uh, that Drew ran into up in Philadelphia that just stopped him coming out of the restroom or something, I think. Um, he says, um, on September 8th, I will start my final uh, year at Westminster, uh, which is Philadelphia. Um, the biggest... Uh, change over the last two years has been a new appreciation for Christ and the gospel. I can't tell you enough how much my wife and I have benefited from the ministry at Church of the Redeemer. About three years ago, I lost heart one night looking at the cost of seminary. But the Lord in his grace has mercifully provided through the sweet and savant memorial scholarship. May God continue to use you, use you for his glory. And then another one. I'm honored to be awarded this scholarship to aid in my quest in growing in the knowledge of our Lord and being better prepared for ministry. I entered Reformed Theological Seminary confident 
that God had called me to an education in how to properly handle the scriptures for his glory. Without such a gift from this group, the stress of financial challenges is overwhelming, but we serve a God who provides for his beloved. My wife and I are overflowing with thankful hearts for your generosity. I know we have a, um, a man here, Drew, who has a great vision for this city and this community, and he also has a unique gift in, in uh, strategy and planting uh, for, for planting of churches. So we have a vision that is much broader than just what you see here. And uh, this, the scholarship fund is one way that God has provided in his, in his amazing generosity for us to help equip men for this ministry for the future. And uh, if, in, if at some point you ever want to give to the fund, all you got to do is write scholarship fund in the memo line of a check. Uh, if you want to put it long term into estate planning or something like that, that, that also would be uh, an amazing thing. We want to make this uh, scholarship uh, fund not a secret anymore. We want to make it widely known, uh, not just here at Redeemer, but at our, all of our sister churches throughout the Presbytery. And, uh, th- and, and uh, perhaps God will do an amazing thing to create not just um, a $300,000 endowment, but a several million dollar endowment over time that can be used to raise up uh, future uh, church planters and men to uh, share the gospel. So thank you. I wanted you to make sure everybody was fully aware of what we're doing and, and this amazing tool that God's given us. Amen. Please come back and celebrate with us tonight at 530. There is child care through kindergarten. Uh, and so we will have people actually from uh, other churches that are going to serve us so that we can all be in here together that we'll be over there with our kids. So bring your kids and come uh, and celebrate with us. We really are. We, we have a high billing to live up to. If you've not seen the, the Covenant Hall, you need to go over there and see what the ladies have done over there. Uh, it's amazing. So we got to celebrate well. And to do that, we need you. So please come. Uh, now receive the benediction this morning. If your faith is in Jesus Christ, uh, regardless of whether you are spiritually fit or you are sin sick, uh, then the promise is if you've put your faith in him, then the Father now raises his hands over you to bless you. And that's exactly what this is. And so receive then his blessing. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.